The following message was brought to you by the gifts and love offerings of the people of Rancho Baptist Church in Temecula, California. This message was recorded during our regular Sunday morning worship service. And while Pastor Matt is on a short-term missions trip, one of our elders, Mike Jones, will be leading us in communion, talking about the efficacy of Christ's sacrifice. Let's join Mike now in his sermon. If you have ever struggled wondering if you're truly forgiven as a believer, or if you have you struggle with temptation and you felt that uh, you've sinned so many times, God just couldn't forgive you one more time. You've come before the throne and you feel like, you know, I can't ask for forgiveness for this one sin one more time. Or you've been going for church and maybe you grew up in church and memorized the verses and learned all about Christ, but... Years went by and you grew up and you began to wonder and doubt about your Christianity, about your relationship with Christ or what you had been taught and you become uh, perhaps a little skeptical. Well, if that might describe you, then Hebrews chapter 10 is for you. I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 10. It's near the end of your Bible. You'll come to 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, Titus. Philemon, and then Hebrews. If you get to the maps, you've gone too far. And while you're turning there, I'll just try to give you a little backfill. We don't know exactly who the writer of Hebrews is. There have been all various kinds of uh, uh, ideas put forth, but the bottom line is it was written by the Holy Spirit through an author of whom we do not know the name. The audience was predominantly Jewish. That's why it's called the book of Hebrews. And so there's a lot of things in this book that the typical Jewish person would be very well versed in. It would be very understandable to them. Unfortunately, if we haven't been in church for very long and you haven't studied much of the Old Testament, some of this would be a little bit fuzzy to us. It may not have as much meaning to us as it did to them, but they would have understood this a little bit better. And what the author is doing in the book of Hebrews is he's setting forth a number of uh, arguments because in this audience, there are a number of people. There are people in the audience who uh, were believers, but as they went along, other Jewish people were saying, you know, it's not just enough to trust in Christ. We need to still keep the law and do some of these things that were done under the law. And some of these Christians were confused. There are other people in the audience who were fence sitters. These people had seen what Christ had done. They had heard about what Christ had done. They uh, had all the information, but they still hadn't come to the point of making a decision for Christ. We have people like that in the church today. Believers who might be doubting their faith and others who may understand it all, but they haven't come to a place where they've made a personal commitment to Jesus Christ. That might be the spouse who lets the wife go with the kids to church and they know it's real, they've heard it all, they understand the gospel, but they're just not ready to concede and give their life to Jesus Christ. And then there are some people in the audience who are skeptics. And the skeptics perhaps uh, were still trying to figure out that Jesus Christ was really the Messiah. And so what the writer of Hebrews is doing throughout 
uh, this writing as he's trying to show that Jesus Christ is better than anything that was in the Old Testament. He starts out by going through and explaining that Jesus Christ was better than angels. To what angel, the writer says, did God ever say, Thou art my son, today I have begotten thee. You know, some religions promote that uh, Jesus was uh, equivalent to Michael, the archangel. To what angel did God ever say, you are my son? Jesus isn't in the category of angels. And so the author addresses that. The author addresses that Jesus was better than Moses. He addresses that Jesus was better than the high priest who had to go in year after year on the Day of Atonement to offer sacrifices for sin. They were offering sacrifices for their own sins as well as for the sins of the nation. Jesus didn't have to offer blood sacrifice for his own sins because he was sinless. Jesus was better than the high priest. He was better than the order of Melchizedek. Jesus, he'll uh, argue, was uh, the guarantor, guarantor of a better covenant than Moses. And where we come to today, that Jesus is better than the sacrificial system under the Old Testament. And that's our entry point for today. Jesus' sacrifice was not only better, it was efficacious. When uh, some people learned that I was going to be preaching today, they said, what are you preaching on? And I said, I'm going to be preaching on the efficacy of Christ's sacrifice. And I got this sort of, okay, because it's not a word we throw around too much. What do we mean when we talk about the efficacy of Christ's sacrifice? Well, I tried to give it this definition. Basically what it means is when the, when the word efficacy is applied to the work of Christ, it means that what God determined to achieve by sending his son to die on the cross was completely and eternally accomplished. Efficacy means the thing that was started out to be accomplished was fulfilled. And that's what Jesus did. He completely, uh, i trying to think of enough adjectives, fulfilled the, the law. He completely fulfilled the, re- the requirement to pay for sin. And so that's what we're going to be looking at this morning. The first thing the writer directs us to is the inadequacy of the law to forgive sin. And uh, look at verse 1 with me, Hebrews chapter 10. For the law, since it was only a shadow of the good things to come, and not the very form of things, can never by the same sacrifices year by year, which they offer continually, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered? Because the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have had consciousness of sins. But in order, but in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins year by year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. The old sacrificial system could never bring anyone to a state of perfection. If it had, they would have been able to do away with the sacrificial system. And in verse 2, it reminds us that the animal sacrifices were never complete in the sense of being final. Uh, Sins were never totally forgiven, and people were plagued by their consciousness of sin. What really happened was 
that the sacrifices were inadequate. And so year after year, on the Day of Atonement, the high priest would have to go into the Holy of Holies and sprinkle blood on the mercy seat from the animals that had been sacrificed. So if we pretend for a moment that this room is the tabernacle and this part is the holy, uh, holy place, and behind this curtain, this, this curtain will say, uh, represents the veil that separated uh, the commoner and the common people from the very holy of holies where God's presence dwelt, the high priest could only go behind this veil once a year after he had gone through ceremonial washings and getting himself clean, he would go into the, I know there's just a bunch of junk back here, but he would go back into the Holy of Holies, and there he would sprinkle the blood from the sacrificed animal on the mercy seat. God's presence was said to be between the cherubim on the mercy seat. This represented the presence of God. But the writer tells us they were never made perfect. They always had a, conscious, a consciousness of sins. Why, if God had required these animal sacrifices, were they inadequate? Well, there were two reasons. One is, verse 1 tells us, that they were only a shadow of the things to come. I have a picture of my wife, Virginia, in my wallet. But it's a picture of Virginia. It's not Virginia. And that's what the sacrificial system was. It was a picture pointing to Christ. And so they could never fully atone for anyone. And it was a constant reminder year after year of their sin. The second reason, well, let me back up a moment. It was not only a shadow, and back in Hebrews chapter 8, verse 5, and I'll just read it, the writer uh, reminds people from the Old Testament that these things were a copy of the heavenly things and Moses was warned by God when he was about to erect the tabernacle. For see, he says, that you make all things according to the pattern which was shown you on the mountain. And so when the tabernacle was erected, it was supposed to be precisely the way God had prescribed it to be because it was a, a shadow, a picture of a sacrifice that was finally going to come. Secondly, the blood of animals was inadequate and it was impossible for their blood to deal with sin completely, it had no lasting effect. In his book, The New Covenant, Robert Coleman wrote, Official public sacrifices prescribed by law would number altogether 1,273 a year. If regularly observed, this would amount to 2 million sacrifices from the time of Moses to Christ. That was just the public offerings of sin. That didn't take into account all the individual sacrifices that were made by people for their sins. Think about the thousands and thousands and millions of millions of animals that were sacrificed and it could never make someone perfect before God. All of them were inadequate to forgive or make somebody perfect before God. Next, the writer directs us to the promises of a better sacrifice. Now the writer demonstrates that the Old Testament sacrifices were going to be replaced. And in a moment, we're going to read uh, verses 5 through 9, but I just want to give you a little bit of insight. The writer here is quoting Psalm 40. And David, in writing Psalm 40, 
verses um, four through, uh, excuse me, six through eight, somehow is elevated into a place where he is able to capture a conversation between God the Father and God the Son. It's deity talking to deity. And I'm going to inject the people who are speaking into the text to help you follow along, to follow the writers, uh, what the writer is trying to say. So looking at verse 5 with me, Therefore, when he comes into the world, he being Christ, when he comes into the world, he says, Sacrifice and offerings thou, God, hast not desired, but a body thou, God, hast prepared for me, Jesus Christ. In whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, thou, God, hast no, hast no pleasure. Then I, Jesus Christ, said, Behold, I have come. In the roll of the book it is written of me, To do thy will, O God. Verse 8, after saying above, Sacrifices and offerings and whole burnt offerings, and sacrifices for sin thou hast not desired, nor hast thou taken pleasure in them, which are offered according to the law, Then he, Jesus said, Behold, I have come to do thy God's will. He takes away the first in order to establish the second. This portion of Psalm 40 referred to the incarnation. Uh, The old animals that were sacrificed were going to be replaced. They were inadequate. And look again at verse 5. It says that God had prepared a body. Well, what's that referring to? Well, remember John 1.14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus Christ stepped out of heaven into that little baby body that we adore at Christmas time. And that was the body that God had prepared for Jesus to fulfill his mission to bring redemption to the world. You remember when the angel Gabriel appeared to Mary and he told her that she was going to have a baby. And she said, how can these things be? Because I have never known a man. And the angel answered her and said, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. And the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason, the Holy Child shall be called the Son of God. This is the body the writer was writing about in Hebrews, quoting from the psalm. This is what David was writing about. That little baby that we adore every Christmas season would one day grow up to have those chubby little hands have spikes driven through them. That little baby would one day grow up to have a crown of thorns crushed into its head. That little baby would grow up one day to have his back whipped till it was completely shredded, till some of the organs were hanging out. That little baby body would one day grow up to be a man that would have spikes driven through its hands and feet to bear your sin and my sin. You see, the sacrifice was better because the incarnation was an act of submission to the will of God. Jesus' sacrifice was voluntary. The animals that were sacrificed... Sacrifice never had a a choice. They were just dragged out of the pen and laid on the altar and killed. 
But wholehearted obedience is what God is really looking for, and Jesus is the only one who could fulfill that mission. Jesus said, I, had come, I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And you'll remember that night in Gethsemane, in Jesus' darkest hour. He prayed to God that this cup, referring to the judgment he was about to take upon himself, would be removed. And then Jesus said, what? Not my will, but thine be done. Jesus was totally committed to doing the will of the God from eternity past until he went to the cross so that his work would be a better sacrifice than any of the sacrifices that were offered during the Old Testament time leading up to the time of his death. And so by his obedience, he took away the first, referring to the covenant, he took away the first covenant to establish the second covenant. He abolished the need for the old sacrificial system by offering himself. And so that night in the upper room when Jesus was with his disciples and he took the bread, he said, this is my body. This was the body that God had ordained from eternity past that Jesus would inhabit to be able to go to the cross to bear our sins. Jesus said, this is my body, which is given for you. That's what the author is drawing our attention to. Then the author in Hebrews chapter 10 draws us to the efficacy of Christ's perfect sacrifice. And I know that may be a strange word, but I hope after today it's a word that you embrace in your evangelical vocabulary. We've kind of gotten soft in the church. We don't like to use words like uh, justification and sanctification and petrification. And No, that's not a theological word. But some Christians are petrified. But, uh, but uh, this is one of those words we shouldn't run away from or dismiss as being lofty. This is a word that we should really uh, inscribe on our heart when we understand its meaning. And by fulfilling God's will, Jesus accomplished for us a perfection that was never possible under the Old Testament system. Look at me with verse t- at verse 10. By this will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the sacrifices which can never take away sins. But he, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time onward until his enemies be made a footstool for his feet. For by one offering, he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. Think for a moment of the contrast of what the writer of Hebrews is drawing out. Here were the Old Testament priests who year after year, day after day, kept offering these sacrifices which could never atone for sin. But Jesus, the perfect sacrifice, only needed to offer himself one time. In the tabernacle, besides the Ark of the Covenant and the mercy seat, there were a number of other pieces of furniture. There was the table of showbread, the altar of incense, the golden lampstand. 
there was one piece of, of uh, furniture that was missing in the tabernacle. You know what it was? A chair. There was no chair in the tabernacle because the high priest's work was never done. He had to keep perpetually offering sacrifices for the people. But Jesus, having offered himself one time, was able to sit down at the right hand of God. Why? Because his work was finished. And think of the Old Testament sacrifices that could never take away sin, he tells us here in this chapter. But Jesus, having offered himself once, took care of the sin problem for eternity. It's for all time. Verse 14, For by one offering he is perfected for all time, all time, eternity, those who are sanctified. F.F. Bruce wrote, So perfect a sacrifice was our Lord's presentation of his life to God that no repetition of it is either necessary or possible. It was offered once for all. His sacrifice fully satisfied what God intended to take place at the cross, which was to pay for our sin so that the problem of sin would be taken care of eternally, forever. And because of his perfect sacrifice, every one of your sins, past, present, or future, has been nailed to the cross. Say your name, man. Stan. Where's Stan? Okay, Stan. The first service, I had Stan going there, and I was getting juiced up up here. But anyway, uh, yeah, for all time, all sin. You know, some Christians struggle with accepting God's forgiveness. And kind of if you uh, take to the nth degree what they're saying in their heart, you know, I, I have this sin, and God could never forgive me for this. When you say that, what you really do is disparage the work of Christ on the cross because what you're saying is your sin is bigger than the efficacy of the work of Christ on the cross. What you're saying, in effect, is Christ's sacrifice on the cross was inadequate. It wasn't inadequate. There's no sin that you could commit that Jesus can't forgive. The only sin that cannot be forgiven is the sin of unbelief of failing to trust in Jesus Christ as Savior. Because when you have all the information, as I'm giving you this morning, and you know it's true, and you know that Jesus Christ died to make a provision for sin, and you say, no, thank you, I'm not interested, you have just sentenced yourself to an eternity in hell. So unbelief is the sin that cannot be forgiven. There's nothing more, Jesus isn't going to get back off the seat and offer another sacrifice, unbelief cannot be forgiven. And that is the sin that will etern- uh, eventually condemn somebody to an eternity of separation from God. Also, people struggle with um, not only accepting God's forgiveness, but they have a hard time coming to God to ask for forgiveness. In Hebrews earlier, the writer wrote that we can approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. In the context, what he's talking about is our struggle with sin. We, in our struggle and our battle with temptation, sometimes it gets pretty, 
you know, the battle is on. We're struggling not to do this thing again, and we're uh, not getting anywhere. And uh, we don't think we can come to God for help, but this tells us that we can come to God to ask for mercy and help in our time of need. Who are these enemies it refers to in verse 13? Well, Paul wrote the Philippians in chapter 3, for as I have often told you before, and now tell you again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction, their God is their stomach, and their glory is their shame. Their mind is on earthly things, but our citizenship is in heaven. There are people who just don't want to accept Christ, and, and by doing that, they have become the enemies of Christ. And one day, they will not see him, meet him as Savior, they'll meet him as their judge. As I thought about what I was working on, I thought came to me, is there any other religion that you know of that has a Savior that can fully perfect and make holy the people who turn to that so-called God? Jesus Christ is the only one who offers redemption. A lot of people say, oh, you know, we all worship the same God. No, we don't. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. There's only way because there's only one perfect Savior who provided the efficacy to secure our redemption, to give us the perfection that we need to be able to stand before God, and no other religion in the world does that. I am the way, the truth, and the life. There's no other way. It's not all roads lead to Rome. It only is available through Christ. Then the writer wants us to know about the witness of the Holy Spirit. Verses 15 through 17. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us after saying, This is the covenant that I will make with them. After those days, says the Lord, I will put my laws upon their heart and and upon their minds will write them. Then he says, and their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. What he's doing here is pointing us to the prophecy of Jeremiah. And Jeremiah predicted the time of a future covenant. And that future covenant was now. It was fulfilled in Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit is saying to his his Jewish audience, you know, if you revere Jeremiah as your prophet, Jeremiah told you this was coming. Why don't you believe it? And so, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the prophet wrote that there was going to be a time that a new covenant was coming. And that night, Jesus held up the cup. There were different cups that were observed, different glasses of wine or cups of wine that he observed during the Passover feast. But he held up the cup of redemption. And then he said, this is the new covenant In my blood. The covenant means agreement. It was the new agreement between God and man that Jesus established. And Jeremiah pointed at the time when that covenant was going to take place. And the writer of Hebrews is saying, why don't you believe what Jeremiah is telling you? The old sacrificial system reminded people of their sins. But when we observe the elements and we partake of the bread and we partake of the cup, We're not remembering and conjuring up all our sins. 
the Bible tells us that he will remember them no more. When we do this, we're remembering the finished work of Christ and that he took care of our sins so our consciences can be clean and we can serve him. God's not trying to throw up our past in our face. And then the results of Christ's sacrifice for us. Look at verse 18. Now where there is forgiveness of these things, there is no longer, what? Sacrifice for sin? Any sacrifice for sin. Why? Because it's complete. It's efficacious. God completely accomplished through Christ, and Christ accomplished for us on the cross what was intended to happen so that we can have a relationship with Christ. In fact, we have, we have no part in it. Paul wrote, for it is by grace that you have been saved through faith. And this, this what? This faith that it took to accept Jesus Christ, you didn't even have enough faith to trust in Christ. That was a gift from God. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this not from yourself. It's the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. You know why works don't cut it with God? Because you could not do anything to ever merit a standing before God, not in comparison to what his son has done on the cross. And there are a lot of people under the umbrella of Christianity today who think that after they get saved, it's really up to them to keep it up. And they get into a sort of performance Christianity. So if I go to church enough times and I pay my dues enough times and I say enough of this and that and prayers, that somehow that's keeping it in effect. No. Jesus did it. Once for all time. Do I hear an amen, you Baptist? <laughs> that was the result of Christ's sacrifice for us. Folks, if you're one of those fence-sitters and you've never come to the point, and even though you know it's right, you just are kind of a holdout, you have that sort of manana mentality, well, someday I'm going to do that, but now I want to do this and live my life uh, on my own. Maybe today's the time that you need to turn to Christ and accept his perfect sacrifice for your sins. The writer warned earlier in Hebrews, if you keep on saying tomorrow and you keep saying no, it's possible that God will harden your heart and you'll never have the opportunity again. If you keep on seeing and understanding and never come to a knowledge and you've seen it all and experienced it all and you say no thank you, what more can God do for you? And the next time a message like this is preached, it's going to be harder for you to receive Christ. And the one after that, it's become, going to become harder. And God's spirit will not always strive with man. It could come a point where God says, enough. And your hope, your chance of receiving Christ will be lost. So I encourage you today, if you have never trusted in Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, by repenting of your sins and accepting his work, his finished work on the cross, that today would be the day you would turn to him and say, I know I'm a sinner. I accept what you have did for me on the cross. I, I trust in you and begin a new life of following Christ in obedience to God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for our time together and the look into your word. And we thank you for the completed, finished efficacious work of Jesus on the cross. We thank you for loving us so much that you would give your one and only son to die for us. And we thank you for your love. 
we accept the forgiveness. I pray that we would, uh, if we're struggling with sin, would seek to uh, get our lives right with you and walk in the manner in which we've been worthy of the manner in which we've been called. And I pray to this end in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, we are so glad that you chose to listen to us today. Our mission here at Rancho Baptist Church is to glorify God by making disciples who love God, love others, and who live to reach their world for Christ. If you have any questions at all regarding this particular broadcast or this sermon, or if you just want to know God in a deeper way, don't hesitate to contact us. You can call us here at the church at area code 951-676-2911. That phone number again is 951-676-2911. Or you can contact us on our website at www.ranchobaptistchurch.org. That's ranchobaptistchurch.org. Trust that you have a great day in the Lord and God bless you as you walk with Him.